You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. And we're really pleased today to do the Canadian book launch of Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. Um, This book uh, talks about whether is there a line between digital utopia and and a digital police state. Um, And it delves into China's Communist Party, how it's building a new kind of political control through collecting and harnessing personal data from facial recognition to personal genomes to digital footprints through AI and other forms of surveillance. This is um, a fascinating issue, somewhat disturbing issue from a human rights perspective, um, but but something that more and more human rights groups are looking at and are raising concern about uh, what some call digital authoritarianism, the misuse of tech for authoritarian purposes. Um, So we're really pleased today to be launching this book. We're gonna share the link for this book um, on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. But we're really lucky to have the two authors with us today, and I'll introduce them um, um, first. Uh, We have with us Josh Chin, who is Deputy Bureau Chief in China for The Wall Street Journal. Prior to that position, he covered politics and tech in China for The Wall Street Journal for more than a decade, and he led an investigative team that won the Gerald Loeb Award for International Reporting in 2018 for a series exposing the Chinese government's pioneering embrace of digital surveillance. Josh, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. And we also have with us Lisa Lin. Um, Lisa is a China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal based in Singapore. Uh, Lisa was part of the team that won the Loeb in 2018 and contributed to a series uh, on Chinese leader Xi Jinping that was named a Pulitzer finalist in 2021. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So um, this is an issue uh, around the world. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of going to be a lot of interest in your book. It just launched. We're, we're really happy to have you join us to talk to Canadians about this, but as well, um, you know, we're, we have different followers that are also engaged on this call today. Um, so I have a set of questions I'd like to go into a general discussion with you both about the book, what you uncovered, um, and, and, and to delve a little bit more into detail about this. Um, my colleagues will share the link for the book. For those who are listening, please consider ordering it. We'll put out the link um, it's where you can order it online. Uh, or at your local book bookstore, wherever you are. And then we're going to turn to the audience um, in about 30 minutes. Uh, and so um, for those of you who are following on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook, there's a function that you can, um, that you can, uh, you can actually ask questions, pose questions to us, and then I'll read those in a short little while. But I'd like to, to, to maybe really just start uh, and ask um, that both of you have been writing extensively about China before you decided to write this book. Can you explain your approach to, the, to your book? Like, what, what made you want to write this? And, and just tell us a bit about, about how it all started. Who would like to, uh, to, to go for it, Josh or, or Lisa? I guess, I guess I can kick it off. Um, yeah, you know, I was, uh, I've been a reporter in, in, in China, I think at the time we started writing the book for more than a decade. And, uh, and you know, actually, I never, I, I, there's so many excellent books on China uh, that, that I never really felt the desire the, to, to write a book unless, unless it was, I had a really clear um, subject, right? Uh, and, and in 2017, Lisa and I um, started reporting on, on, on this topic, on, on the Communist Party's uh, embrace of, of digital surveillance. And it just became clear to us in the course of that reporting that what was happening in China was such a tectonic shift 
in governance, right? In, in, in the way that governments can sort of manage and control people. And it was something just ex extremely new and kind of confusing and, and, and fascinating and important. And, 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 and it was worth, um, you know, setting aside some time to really dive into it in, in, in book form. Lisa, would you like to, um, to uh, follow up and tell us about your thoughts and, 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 and uh, follow up on what uh, Josh um, uh, mentioned? Sure, yeah, I, I would kind of say um, the genesis of the book was a series of stories we wrote for the Wall Street Journal on China's like increasing uh, surveillance of its own citizens. And the, how we stumbled on the topic was we, we both generally knew that and felt that there was a growing kind of, um, there was just growing, there's a growing sense of oppression in the air and, and just people were, generally felt worried to say certain things or, or you just felt the presence of the police state in your face just so much more um, going into 2016, 2017. And what really actually kind of nailed it as a story, because, you know, with newspapers, you always have to have the angle. What really nailed it as a story was when we began to kind of track the money uh, that was flowing into the Chinese technology industry and there was a lot of money flowing into artificial intelligence and it wasn't every aspect of artificial intelligence a lot of money was flowing into facial recognition and this was a space you know because I'm a tech reporter in China and I've covered China tech for a while and this was a space that you rarely saw money flow into prior to that it was always you know money would be going into a consumer internet application or an app and then suddenly there are like millions, hundreds of millions of dollars going into facial recognition. And when we dug into it a little bit further, we realized that the Chinese police were essentially using it in, in places real time uh, to catch criminals and fugitives uh, or, you know, in, in other um, in other contexts, it would be like a retrospective. They would run facial recognition past um like past video footage just to figure out if a person of interest was there. And that really got us started on the and the surveillance aspect of the book. And, and we really knew it was a book when at the end of 2017, Josh traveled up to Xinjiang, which is a Northwestern part of um, China that is home to many, many Turkic Muslims, uh, about 12 million of them. And what he encountered there was so shocking because the same surveillance systems that we were seeing used by the police in other you know, Chinese cities were used to essentially oppress uh, an ethnic minority. And that's when we realized that we probably needed the book and we needed the, the space of a book to really explore this topic and figure out what was happening on the ground. Thank you, Lisa. That's, that's one of the issues that, that we've been looking at is really the surveillance, particularly of the Uyghurs. Um, and that's come to our attention as a human rights organization. Um, but but I, I'd like to touch about this more uh, because your book opens and closes with a haunting story of Tahir Hamut Izgil, a Uyghur poet who was subjected to China's DNA surveillance. Can you talk about what he experienced and why you decided to tell his story in particular? Yeah, so uh, so Tahir Hamut Izgil is is, um, is a really a, a fascinating uh, story in his own right. He... Uh, he's considered by some people to be uh, perhaps the, the greatest living Uyghur poet. Um, and uh, he's also a filmmaker. He, um, he in, the, in, in his youth, when he was a university student in Beijing, he was a, he was a student leader during the, the uh, Tiananmen Square 
demonstrations. Um, and then after that, he was actually recruited at, at one point to sort of join the government, which he which he desperately tried to avoid. But anyway, he was a you know he was a, a really well known cultural figure in in Uyghur circles in Arumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, and uh, you know in and he had sort of around sort of 2014, 2015, the Communist Party really started um, tightening controls in Xinjiang. And there had been a, a couple of, so Xinjiang to back up a little bit is a, for those who, who haven't been following the story closely is, is a region that is, is populated mostly by or, or largely by uh, Turkic Muslim minorities uh, who, who really just, they're, you know, linguistically, culturally, religiously, they have very little in common with Han Chinese. Uh, and they've always sort of chafed at, uh, at Chinese control. And in, in 2013 and 14, there were a couple, there were a series of, uh, of attacks, of violent attacks by Uyghurs against Chinese people, including in Beijing and, and, uh, and another Chinese city outside of Xinjiang. And that um, really uh, sparked a crackdown um, led by, by, by Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, he, he called it a people's war on terror. Um, and so he really, you know, after the, the attacks happened, uh, she visited Xinjiang and, and ordered this crackdown. And so Tahir, he sort of saw the writing on the wall. He was, he's a very savvy guy. And he actually started um, trying to lay the groundwork to, to, to get his family out. And this actually turned out to be extremely lucky for him because starting at the end of 2016, uh, the, the party began rolling out this, this new uh program of forcible assimilation which was um aided by by massive surveillance by by this it's just immense rollout of cutting edge sort of ai driven surveillance technologies um which which the which the government was combining which the government was using to sort of track and categorize uyghurs uh and then and through that process decide which individuals they were going to send off to a, to a new series of, of internment camps that they had built basically for the purposes of, of sort of political re-education. And so uh, in the early part of this process, Tahir was sort of called in, him and his wife, at one point to a police uh, station where they were sent down to the basement and they had a full biometric makeup done on them. So they, they, had, they had their voices recorded, they had their blood taken, they had their fingerprints taken, and they had 3D images of their faces uh, recorded. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, you know, Tahir didn't really know exactly what was going on. He didn't comprehend it. No one was, none of the government, the government wasn't saying what they were doing, but it kind of became clear to him over time uh, what was happening, uh, especially as friends of his started to disappear um, and uh, into, the, into the camps. And, um, you know, finally he did manage to, to figure out a way. I won't, I won't reveal all the details, but he did figure out a way to get out of, of Xinjiang. Uh, and he was one of the last uh, Uyghur intellectuals to escape the region before, before the doors slammed shut. And, um, and we were really fortunate that he, um, when we were reporting on this story initially, we'd gotten in touch with him and he had decided on his own that he would be willing to sort of tell us his story with his name attached, which, which, you know, which is a great, um, you know, it was great personal risk to him and, and, and his family. Um, and, uh, and so he, he was the one, he was one of the very few Uyghurs who witnessed the system sort of being put in place, but then was able to escape and tell the story. 
Thank you. Um, Lisa, I'd like to turn to you and, and um, we've noticed in your book, uh, you and Josh argue that the Chinese government has managed to build a new social contract with its citizens. They give up their data in exchange for a growing economy and safer and easier lives. Um, how did China's surveillance state come about and what is the role of China's cutting edge research in computer vision in this process? Yeah, sure. So China has always held this notion that it wants to, you know, create a, a surveillance state. And um, in the past, it just didn't have the technological capability to do so. I mean, it was very rudimentary, I would say, uh, when China first started out and it tried to surveil it since it's, there was a lot of human surveillance, obviously, you know, when, when you live in China, you have neighborhood watchdog committees, right? And there would be like people in the neighborhood with an armband, that's the neighborhood vo volunteers, but they're essentially just kind of keeping tabs on people, just making sure like, Things are okay. Uh, you know, no one's doing any, anything amiss. I, I think really the the big change happened. Uh, I, I would say 2009, 2010, and it, the the rise of the Chinese digital surveillance state was sparked by some by a change that didn't happen in China itself. It was sparked by the invention of the uh, or the realization that you could use very powerful processor chips. Uh, to, and put it to use in AI, uh, and in particular, put it to use to do deep learning and to train your algorithms in a fraction of the time that it would have taken before. So in 2009, 2010, there were uh, Stanford researchers led by a guy called Andrew Ng who discovered that you could use graphic processing chips to train algorithms very quickly. Uh, and that really kind of sparked the use of uh, facial recognition in, in like a huge commercial way, um, image and facial recognition. And help to commercialize it. And that really led to, you know, what we're seeing now with Chinese police today, right? They're using uh, facial recognition and image recognition to kind of sieve out people of interest, be it a fugitive or be it like a Uyghur that they suspect is a terrorist. So I think like it was a big um, technological breakthrough that led to the rise of Chinese, China's digital surveillance state. But in terms of the notion of wanting to surveil its citizens, that's not particularly new. And when you talk about the social contract, like in the past, the social contract in China has always been, we give you a growing economy and in return, you keep us in power. Uh, when, I, when I say us, I mean the Chinese Communist Party. And now, now we've seen the economy is slowing, right? It's no longer chalking up the breakneck growth that it, it did in the 90s or in the early 2000s. Now with the economy slowing, what the government wants to do is with this new social contract is you keep us in power and we'll keep your life as frictionless and you know as free of troubles uh free of worries as possible and that's where you know the digital utopian side of the surveillance state comes in thank you that's that's fascinating but also um just to comprehend how this is happening across such a large country is, is it's it's hard for me to think <laughs> think about this uh you know, uh, what it means and the implications. But I, I'd like to maybe turn to um, the question, in the last few years, we've seen that the COVID-19 pandemic um, has perhaps accelerated the expansion of China's surveillance state beyond uh, Xinjiang. I'm not sure if, if you would think that is true or not. And I'm wondering, um, uh, did the technology used in Xinjiang serve as a model for pandemic surveillance? Uh, are, how are you seeing this evolve in the last two years? Um, 
yeah. would like to, who would like to, to jump in and try to answer that one? <laughs> Perhaps I can take it. Uh, so, so our book, when we started our book in 2019, we, we thought it would be a one-year project. But by the time 2020 came around and COVID hit, we realized that the coronavirus really ushered in a new wave of state surveillance in China that was like unprecedented. We had never seen such huge amounts of surveillance before. So in the past, typically, you know, not every Chinese citizen was surveilled real time. Uh, there was heavy surveillance going on, but you know, if you, unless you were a particular person of interest, and Chinese police tend to define these people of interest in like seven buckets, you know, one of which is like you're a fugitive on the run. Another is like um, you're, you're a drug, you're a drug user or a drug smuggler and you're in the database. Uh, another would be like potential terrorists, which could mean anything from like uh, someone advocating for independence to someone really planning something quite more nefarious. So in the past, prior to COVID, you, you wouldn't see everyone in the population surveil real time. What happened with the coronavirus was China really, China began to use what they call the health code to start keeping track of close contacts of coronavirus patients. So this health code would be like a QR code, similar to like a barcode uh, that could be either green, yellow, or red. Um, and in order to assess your health risk, so if you were green, if it's a green health code, you're essentially a clean bill of health. You've not been close to a COVID patient. If it's a red health code, that meant that you know you had been close to an area where a COVID cluster had been discovered. And how they actually managed to assess this was China would kind of monitor the cell phone signals of um, everybody's mobile phone. And if you, if the, the state telecom companies would share that information with the health, the health commission, and if you had wandered into like a city and or stayed four hours in a city that had a COVID cluster or an outbreak, the you know the state telecom company would know, and it it would instantly inform the health commission that would and that would turn your health code red. So essentially, what what happened with COVID was, you know, we, we went from maybe the people in Xinjiang being watched in a real, on a real-time basis very closely um, to like the entire Chinese population being watched on a real-time basis. So now if you were an China, ordinary Chinese citizen in China, you know, the, the government will know where you've been over the last two weeks, like which cities. Um, and if you had to check in into a mall, for example, you'd have to show your health code. So they'll know, you know, so-and-so was in a mall or like taking a subway at this particular point in time. Well, Josh, do you um, have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, one of the more, one of my more vivid personal experiences uh, in China actually came at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, I walked, I was in, I was in my, my apartment complex in Beijing and I walked downstairs one one morning, uh, I, I think it was probably late January or early February, and I realized that all of the entrances except for one of, in, in my residential compound had been blocked off uh, so that everyone in the compound had to go through one, enter and exit through one spot where they had officials kind of tracking who was coming and going and asking where you were going. And what was striking to me about that was that that was exactly the system of control that uh, that was being used by the Communist Party against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, 
they called it closed management. And it was just a way for them to make sure that everyone, every Uyghur who was coming and going would have to scan their ID card when they, when they went home or left. And, you know, and that was, you know, and, and it was at that moment, I sort of thought back to this conversation I'd had with a, a human rights activist shortly after I'd come back from, from Xinjiang, who said, when I described what I'd seen there and he said, you know, all of that is going to be, is going to be, is coming for the rest of China as well. And at the time I didn't really believe him because uh, it just seemed so extreme. Uh, but the, but the, you know, the, the pandemic really was a watershed event to sort of, you know, in some ways we, we think of it as kind of like the nine 11 level event for this era of, of, of state surveillance. And, uh, and it really, um, it really took this this model in Xinjiang and, and spread it around the country. Thanks, Josh. So I'd like to turn the question more. I mean, there's been I think your book makes an amazing um, contribution to understanding this issue of state surveillance and how it's expanded. And, and there have been increased amount of human rights organizations, scholars also starting to look into this. Um, but I'm wondering um, if you either of you could comment on on what does the West I mean, which is a broad concept, Europe, North America, Australia, you know, what does the West misunderstand about Chinese state control, including the social credit system or the concept of privacy? Like, well, are leaders or governments, are, are they on top of this? Do they understand this? Or are we just kind of misinformed? I'm, I'm wondering if you can, you can tell us a bit about your interactions with, uh, with pe people uh, in Western societies. Yeah, you know, I, I oh, sorry, go ahead, Lisa, do you do have a... Oh, uh, okay. I, I, I could make make it a quick one. I guess one of one of the big takeaways from our book um, was that the surveillance system in or the state surveillance system in China is more of a it was as much of a propaganda project as it was like a tech and security project. Um, and the reason why I say this was, as we were doing research into the book, you know, one thing that really stood out to us was how proud the Chinese the Chinese government was with its own state surveillance system. You know, state surveillance in any other part of the world is something that's very, very hush-hush. Uh, if you were like the US government or the British government, you rarely find that these governments are very transparent about what they're doing. But in China, there was like a bevy of like state media reports talking about, you know, how they were um, setting up like hundreds and thousands, um, sorry, hundreds and hundreds of millions of cameras all across China, right? just set up for the for the purpose of keeping like national security law and order and some of these systems were going above and beyond they were like finding missing children or they were helping spot el elderly citizens who had dementia and brought them home so this this you know when when we noticed this i thought okay there would be an interesting take to state surveillance and i thought we'd try and hunt it down um, and, and dig deeper into like the digital utopia part of state surveillance. But unfortunately, every time I saw, and, and we chased down probably about three or four state media like stories, and I would try and actually visit the place where like the incident happened showing that like a, a kid, you know, a missing kid was found with a facial recognition um, camera network and brought home. And, at each point in time, I just found like I could never find evidence that that had happened. And, you know, I would walk the streets talking to people. Um, so that that's, was when it hit me, right? Like uh, you, state surveillance system doesn't always have to work efficiently as long as people think it works. 
um, if you think that you're being surveilled, then you're not going to be like vandalizing the wall. Or if you think you're going to be surveilled um, or someone's watching, you're not going to be possibly not going to be like, or you think twice before mugging someone on the street. So I think that was kind of that. What that was one of the misunderstandings I probably brought into the book when I was writing it, when, when we initially started researching it, but I came up with a very, very different understanding. Thank you, Lisa. Josh, do you have anything you'd like to um, follow up with? Yeah, you know, I, I think on the, you know, you brought up the topic of privacy, which I think is, is a really fascinating topic, just generally, um, and, you know, particularly in the China context, because, you know, I think we, you know, we entered this this project, like a lot of other people, uh, with the assumption, I think the reasonable assumption that, you know, privacy uh, in China, concepts of privacy in China are very different than they are maybe in, in, in Canada or, or the US or Europe. Um, and, and you know, we sort of felt like they were almost non-existent. And, the, and you know, there was, there was reason for that, which is, you know, uh, the word for privacy in China didn't appear in the official um, Chinese dictionary until 1998, right? So it was a very new concept. And, I, and, and, as we were writing the book, we actually had one chapter um, uh, where we were following a an artist, a guy by the name of Xu Bing, very very well known, fantastic artist, uh, was a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant at one point, and he he was making a documentary uh, use or sorry, he was making a fictional film using surveillance footage, uh, and the reason he was able to do this is that there were these websites in China at the time that were where you could watch live video feeds from people's home security cameras, right? Which is just like this, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was sort of similar to, I mean, we have them in, in the West where they're, you know, you have like a home security camera and you can use a web interface that's like password protected so that only you can see it, except for in China, it wasn't password protected. So everyone could see it. So it was basically surveillance television and uh, and so he was downloading thousands of hours of this footage and he was using it to sort of weave this fictional story. And uh, and so for us, it was like, oh, this is an amazing example of how Chinese people just don't care about, not only do they not care about privacy, but they find this entertaining, right? It's a form of, you know, it's a, you know, it's something that people were kind of going online to watch uh, in their spare time. And as he was taking that film around to film festivals, uh, a, a controversy started brewing on Chinese social media because a woman... Uh, had been watching these, look, you know, visiting these websites and watching these surveillance feeds. And she realized, actually, you know, there's a lot of people on here, like there were like scenes from like yoga studios, right? Of women who, who like clearly didn't realize they were being filmed or like couples on dates or, or children in dance classes, that sort of thing, where it was just really creepy. And so she wrote this big blog post sort of pointing all of this out and it became a huge uh, controversy. It went viral and there was so much public anger over the, these privacy violations that the companies had to shut the websites down. So the story that we thought was about how Chinese people didn't care about privacy actually became a story about how they, how some of them really do. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a you know, privacy is a really complicated topic in China uh, and it's constantly evolving. Um, but it's, you know, the, the, the second part to that story is that like the, the, the communist party sort of, recognize the kind of the malleability of privacy and it sort of channeled the 
you know, this new interest in privacy amongst Chinese people, particularly in cities, and has been directing it sort of against comp away from state surveillance and towards companies, right? So now the, the Chinese government actually really supports privacy rights, but only when they're sort of directed at, at companies instead of the government. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I have a question. We, you kind of frame that um, we really saw their surveillance state, you know, really get set up after certain terrorist attacks and um, and really start off in, um, in Xinjiang. And I'm wondering, um, is there any awareness now among Chinese citizens about what's happening to the Uyghur community? And are they oblivious to it as a result of the government's propaganda and control of the internet? Like, like, well, what's happening in China? Does anyone talk about this or is it like a, a non-discussion in the first place? Yeah, uh, I mean, people, people are, I think, uh, well, the, the short answer is, is not really um, in that uh, very few Chinese people travel to Xinjiang. It's a very, it's a remote place. It's kind of, it's, it's, you know, it takes hours to fly there and even, and, and, you know, much longer if you're, if you're taking a train or um, so very few Chinese people have experience of Xinjiang and are re really even that interested in it. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a ton of censorship in China. The government, the government controls uh, what appears on uh, in media and on the internet to a to a degree uh, to a, to a really um, impressive degree, and so most Chinese people don't don't know exactly what's going on. They do they do sort of get the propaganda messages, which is that that the Communist Party has rolled out what what they what they describe as a sort of innovative approach to to counterterrorism, and that. And that it's been extraordinarily successful, and that everyone in Xinjiang is is now happy with, um, you know, happy to be happy with their lives and happy to be part of China. And so that's sort of the, the state of of the discussion on Xinjiang. But what's interesting is, and we, we sort of talked about this a little bit with with COVID, is um, although they don't necessarily know it, Chinese people have started because of of the sort of zero COVID measures and these really harsh. Um, this really harsh approach to 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 the pandemic. Uh, a lot of Chinese people are experiencing Xinjiang-style surveillance. So even though they don't they don't necessarily connect it with Xinjiang, they are sort of experiencing that hard edged um, that hard edged uh, surveillance. Lisa, do you have anything to add on on that? No, I, I think uh, Josh pretty much covered it. The censorship and stuff. Yep. No, it, it's interesting because we, we've done a lot of work on the Uyghurs and whenever we post stuff on social media, we have, um, uh, you know, troll armies on Twitter going after us, yeah. uh, <laughs> anonymous accounts, all of a sudden accounts with five, six followers get retweeted two, three hundred times. So, yeah, so we, we know that there's a there's a, a whole kind of um, aspect of disinformation and denial <laughs> on social media that um, the human rights activists uh, are working on. So, you know, I, 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 I'd like to turn to um, the issue about the relationship of the Chinese people to technology. Uh, there seems to be a propensity by President Xi Jinping to apply an engineering mindset to social and political problems. And you introduce the concept cybernetics as well as a man named Quan Zuzen. Can you tell us more about this? What is this concept of cybernetics that you discuss in your book? Right. So, so cybernetics is actually a, um, it's a, uh, it's it's a field of study that sort of uh, emerged in the kind of mid twentieth century, early to mid twentieth century, and uh, and it's it just it, it you know it the most simple formulation is it, it is essentially the study of of the relationship between information and control, 
right? And it, it is credited now. I mean, it was sort of long forgotten, um, but it's credited now with basically kind of ushering in the information age. Um, so, you know, and if you, if you think about the term cyber or cybernetics, it is, it's the root of, 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 of words that we use all the time, like cyberspace uh, and cyborg. Right. So it's it is um, so it's an incredibly in influential field, uh, although people don't necessarily know very much about it. And, uh, and it really captured the attention of, of, of a guy named uh, Chinese scientist named Chen Shui-sen, who was a uh, born in China, sort of brilliant uh, mathematician and, and, and engineer who came to the United States uh, for graduate school on a, on a fellowship and had a really meteoric career uh he was he he was um a pioneer of rocket science in the u.s of the, of the rocket program he was um named head of the uh jet propulsion lab at caltech um the the, the first head of the jet propulsion lab at caltech um in the 1940s and uh in the 1950s when the red scare arrived the fbi accused him of uh of being a communist um, and, and he basically encountered cybernetics when he was under FBI surveillance and his, uh, basically essentially under a form of house arrest in Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, shortly after he discovered cybernetics, he went back to, to China and, uh, and he used, initially he used cybernetics to sort of, uh, as this, uh, basically kind of a pure engineering approach, which he applied it to, to building the Chinese rocket program. But then over time, he decided to apply it to society, that, that these ideas about the way that information and control, that, the way that information can be used to exercise control was, was, was something that you could use to uh, create a more perfect society. Um, and he's really, you know, he, he's really ended up being the godfather of the surveillance state because he sort of laid these theoretical foundations and he, he described society as a sort of giant complex system that uh, you know that essentially could be engineered the way other systems were. If you have, if, if only you have enough, um, if you can collect enough data, um, and and do the proper analysis on it, you know, you can sort of create a society that that sort of is like a guided missile, right? And that it's self-correcting, uh, and it, it kind of stays on a path. Uh, and so that's that's really you know, and those ideas then became really popular. Um, they, they sort of they found their way into the kind of Communist Party canon, and they were taught uh, at the the Central Party School in Beijing, which is the elite training academy for for Communist Party officials, uh, and really had had a fairly big influence on the way the Communist Party approaches uh, social control. Thanks, Josh. Lisa, do you have anything to add on 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 that concept? Yeah. I think he covered it pretty well. Okay, um, we're starting to get questions coming in from those following us online. So please, for those that are on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook, please pose your questions. Um, I have a few more, but I, I one that that um, that I have the question for you: How difficult as a journalist is it to report on stories and to meet people in China among this surveillance state? I mean, it it it, it I've heard struggles of people of journalists trying to go to Xinjiang. I've, I've I'm just wondering, can you tell us personally about, about how difficult it was for you to write this book and, and what are the challenges as a journalist operating um, in, in this growing surveillance state? Lisa, maybe yeah. would you like to start off? Sure, I can take this one. Um, I, I would put it this way. As a journalist in China, you are always, um, you know, you, you definitely know you are being watched um, and they don't let you forget it. So for example, 
very often if I make calls with my cell phone and I'm, I'm clearly talking in Chinese, but if I say a couple of you know, banned words in quick succession or a couple of sensitive terms in quick succession, so it could be like Xi Jinping or uh, authoritarian, you know, or censorship together in, in the same sentence, uh, my call gets cut. Uh, and, and it's not that like a human is listening to me on the phone or, or listening to every call, but the state telecom companies have uh, voice recognition so that when you're making these calls and they realize like you're saying certain terms in quick succession, they realize that you're saying something you're not supposed to be saying and they quickly cut your call. So it's just things like that that kind of remind you that there's always a big brother watching. Um, and, and the other thing that was uh, kind of, I guess, quite interesting to me in, in recent weeks was when, when our book came out, uh, it has a cover that says Surveillance State and you know, Inside China's Quest to Reshape the Global Order. Uh, and, it's a big, um, and it's a big menacing illustration of the eye on the cover. And I tried to upload that as a profile picture for two of my social media platforms in China. One of them took down the picture instantly like within a minute the picture was taken down and the second one took it down within like a few minutes and sent me a note saying that uh, my profile picture was violating some of the rules and regulations in china so it was it, it you know the the companies the social media companies the internet companies they're like surveilling you it's not just like the police that are doing it like the internet companies are also surveilling um, like the Chinese population as well. And I, I would say as a journalist in China, you, everyone has like a handler, which you meet like every so often. And the handler, they're very nice people, but they kind of remind you that you're reporting in China and that reporting in China involves certain like rules and regulations that you have to follow. Wow, I, I, I haven't heard the, the story of people making phone calls and having their phone calls disrupted. Um, so that's that's something new that I learned today. Um, um, Josh, do you have any other personal experiences that might be different from Lisa's of, of reporting from China um, that perhaps yeah. you bring to our, to our attention just, just to find out like, what's it like being a journalist in um, uh, an increasingly, I guess, difficult environment? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, well, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll answer that question, but I, I actually want to preface it by saying that actually it's gotten, my experiences were, were of a China that was actually much easier to report in mm -hmm. than it is now. Um, uh, but having said that, even when I was there, it was, it was incredibly difficult, particularly in Xinjiang, uh, just because of the, the pervasiveness of surveillance there. I mean, it was just, um, you know, anytime, you know, as a journalist, your, your, your main priority is always, or always should be anyway, sort of protecting your sources and making sure you you don't put people in in undue danger and so in Xinjiang you know as much as we wanted to have long you know conversations with Uyghurs about what they were experiencing it was just really difficult and, and dangerous because it just to just be seen as a as a foreign reporter with the, with a Uyghur was would be to put them in danger and so you know a lot of our reporting there was just kind of snatches of conversation where you could grab them, you know, in, a, in a, an alleyway out, out of view of cameras or in a car or, um, you know, in a cafe, you know, just sort of quickly. And, and so, you know, really the our reporting there was, you know, um, aside from the, the story that the stories that the exiles like Tahir told us, you know, in, in terms of on the ground reporting, it was literally, you know, it was just kind of having as many really short conversations as we could with as many people, 
uh, as we could in kind of patching together a, a story based on that. And, um, and, you know, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's, it, and it's gotten much worse, you know, since, um, since I left China, I was actually, I was expelled in, in early 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, as part of a kind of US China tensions. And, uh, and, you know, since, since then, you know, just based on conversations with my colleagues, I think it's gotten, you know, even harder to talk to people outside of Xinjiang, right, even just sort of, other parts of China where normally you would have been able to talk to anyone have gotten, have gotten much more difficult. Um, you know, people are really suspicious of, of, of foreign media now because the, the communist party has been sort of portraying foreign journalists as agents of, of, of uh, Western governments uh, trying to, trying to undermine the country and that sort of thing. So, so the challenges are, are, are pretty immense these days. Thank you, Josh. Um, I know uh, seeing the same accusations of, of human rights groups, I face it all the time claiming I'm, I'm in for raising stuff about Uyghurs that I'm somehow working for the US deep uh, American deep state or, or, or I mean, it comes all the time. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not surprising. It's going towards both journalists and, and civil society. So I'd like to start turned. We have a couple of questions coming in. I'm going to put the first one up on the screen. Um, this is from uh, our co colleague in Ottawa, Margaret McQuaid Johnson, a long time uh, government executive. She's now a fellow at the university of Ottawa, does a lot of work on tech human rights in China. And she says, can you talk about the social credit system and how it's affecting individuals and companies? Yeah. So uh, the social credit system is, is it's probably the one aspect of the, of the surveillance state that is widely known uh, outside of China. It's also probably the most um, misunderstood uh, part of the surveillance system. I think a lot of people when it, when, you know, um, when, when the, when it first came out that the, the China was building the system, there was a lot of misunderstanding, which which some of it w was kind of natural, uh, but but people kind of conflated it um, uh, with with other systems, and there was the sense that it was you know that China was going to be um, giving everyone in, in the country a, a score based on their behavior, and uh, and uh, and that uh, everyone sort of be judged that way, and that wasn't exactly the case. Um, so what is happening? Uh, it turns out what is happening in China is there is a, there is a social credit system. Um, it is mostly being or is being applied most sort of consistently and effectively to companies. Right. And so the idea is that it's um, the idea behind it is that the government will sort of as a way of, of enforcing ethical behavior uh, is will sort of examine everything that a company does or, or, or an organization does and will and will punish bad behavior in one area uh, in other areas, right? So if you um, violate environmental laws, um, not only will you be fined for for violating that environmental law, but you might have trouble getting um, uh, a loan to expand your factory, right? So like, so your environmental violation will extend uh, into the sort of financial realm, um, and it's sort of really a regulatory. Uh, mechanism when it comes to companies and it's and it's you know the evidence suggests that it's actually maybe been has been fairly effective in that sense um, with individuals it's much more patchwork um, and, it, and it kind of depends it varies from like local government to local government some governments do actually have tried to use a score or, or letter grades um, others have sort of shied away from that uh, and it's all kind of it's, it's a bit of a mishmash uh, at this point. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the big barriers for a social credit system in China, which, which they are trying to, to overcome is, 
um, is that data in China, there's a ton of data uh, about what individuals are doing. Um, and the government does have, ultimately can get access to all that data, but it's sort of spread out and it's kind of fragmented. And, you know, in order to do something like give, give everyone in the country a score, you would have to have all of that data on a centralized, uh, in a centralized database. And you would have to have really sophisticated algorithms to sort of um, produce that score. And neither of those things are a reality at this point in China, uh, although, although they, they do seem to be kind of pushing in that direction. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Lisa, on the social criticism, I'm wondering if, if you could tell us a bit more about what are, what are they looking for? Is it people that have um, expressed political opinions, like you said, when your phone is cut off? Is that what they're looking at? Or is it, is, is it much wider than, than, um, than just political issues? Yeah, I, to be honest, I think when the Chinese government was coming up with a social credit system, it wasn't to really target petitioners or protesters, right? Uh, what, what was happening in the backdrop and in the run-up to the social credit system was you were seeing a lot of companies uh, in China that were essentially either selling like fake food or they, um, you know, just a couple of years before the social credit system was announced, there was a big melamine scare where milk formula companies were adding like melamine to increase the protein content in infant milk formula powder. So, I mean, it, this was just like, there was a dime a dozen of companies trying to cheat people or individuals trying to cheat each other. So it, the Chinese government saw it as a deficit of trust mm. in society and felt that, you know, in the absence of religion to kind of keep people on a moral track and on, on, on the right, like, uh, moral ground, they would have to introduce something like a social credit system, right? So to scare you into good behavior, uh, a carrot and sticks approach, reward you when you have good behavior and scare you away from bad behavior. So essentially, I think that really was more of like the thinking when the social credit system was rolled out. And uh, I, I guess to add to what Josh said earlier as well, the same sort of blacklist systems worked with individuals as it does with companies. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a uh, there was one pretty uh, high profile example of a, a recruit, a military, uh, a guy who was supposed to do military service in Hainan, in Hainan. He pulled out of it because he felt like he couldn't handle uh, the tough rigor of Chinese military service. After pulling out of military service, he was put on the military blacklist. And because of the social credit system and the understanding like that if you offended in one area, you could be punished in several other areas, this, this boy essentially couldn't take, like uh, when he traveled, he couldn't take like high-speed rails because he was penalized on like the train blacklist system. And if he were ever, if he wanted to go to school and pursue like a college degree, he couldn't, he was put on the education system blacklist as well. So it really kind of, um, that example kind of illustrates the concept of, of being, you know, offending the government in one area, which is you know, he couldn't complete national service or he didn't want to complete national service and he, they were penalizing him in other areas. So that, that is really kind of the base concept of the social credit system with indi individuals. Well, that's, um, that's, that's quite something to, to think about and how people's lives can be, um, you know, turned upside down or have things blocked uh, for their social progress, education, travel, uh, so forth, because of this. Um, so we have another question coming in from Facebook. I'm going to put this up here. Um, and, and it says... 
Are Chinese citizens fully aware of all the extent of their surveillance apparatus? And does state surveillance reach all parts of China or mostly cities? So I, that's a question. Is it is it really a, an urban an urban phenomenon? Is does it reach into the rural areas? Um, Josh, Lisa, who who would like to um, to to jump in on on this one? I can take this one, uh, and, and I guess you know the the front part of the question was answered by Josh earlier. Uh, when when he spoke about how you know surve the surveillance the real time surveillance that we saw in Xinjiang was rolled out to all of China, so now Chinese citizens are fully aware of what it's like to be tracked on a real time basis and to be punished if they're on the wrong side of the law or in this case you know the wrong color code, uh, interacting with the wrong people um, not wrong people but accidentally you know bumping um, crossing paths with a COVID patient could lead you to have a red color code. And then because of the surveillance, you'd be put into a quarantine a quarantine hotel for a few weeks. Um, in terms of state surveillance reaching all parts of China or mostly cities, state surveillance is everywhere in China. It's not just the cities. Um, China has a rural state surveillance program that they call Shot Eyes, Xue Liang Gong Chen in Chinese. Shot um, Eyes in the sense that, you know, the cameras are all seeing and it doesn't matter where you are. And I, I felt like when I looked into the rural system, it was even more bizarre than like this, the urban surveillance systems because with the rural systems, you had surveillance cameras installed in villages and on street corners. Uh, and it, they didn't just install surveillance cameras, they installed like TV panels in the homes of residents or villages. So they could watch the surveillance cameras. Uh, so it wasn't just the police watching it, like you know, your neighbor could be watching the camera that's installed outside your street. And if she or he or she saw something amiss, he could you know, report that to the authorities. So it was a, a very, very warped, um, bizarre kind of twist to surveillance in the rural areas, perhaps because the Chinese government might have been shorthanded or under-resourced when it comes to like policemen in, in rural areas, or perhaps because they found that uh, privacy notions and privacy awareness in the rural area wasn't as high as in cities. Um, and I, I will probably end off that, um, that question by saying that China has probably more than 400 million surveillance cameras on, in the country right now, and it's a country of 1.4 billion people. So that's like one camera to more than one camera to about three citizens. So it is really everywhere. It's not just in cities. Wow, one one camera for every three citizens. That's um, that that's that's quite a figure uh, that I that I haven't heard from before. Um, so there was another question come up here. I think you've answered part of it, Lisa. The question says, is the surveillance system extending to Hong Kong and Tibet? So if it's all over China. I assume it's everywhere, but. But in Hong Kong, we've seen, um, you know, uh, a change there, um, kind of the end of the two China systems. What is this extended to Hong Kong? Um, Josh, Lisa, or have you looked into this in your book about the case of Hong Kong? You know, we didn't actually um, uh, we didn't actually get a get a chance to really dive into it in, in Hong Kong. And, and, and partly it was because the situation in Hong Kong was changing so rapidly as we were writing this book. Um, that, that it, it sort of felt like we couldn't get a really good handle on it. I, I mean, now at this point, um, you know, people who've been following the story will know well, you know, there was there were a series of protests, sort of pro-democracy protests um, in Hong Kong over, over several years, which, which, were, which were eventually crushed. Uh, the Communist Party has, has uh, imposed a new national security law in Hong Kong. 
that gives the government uh, really just immense powers to go after people who who oppose uh, the Communist Party, oppose the system there. And so, that, I mean, there definitely is surveillance technology in Hong Kong, whether, you know, how sophisticated it is and, and how well integrated it is with, with surveillance systems on the mainland. We are we aren't really sure at this point, but, but we know that they do exist. And we know that, you know, even um, during the protests, the, the people who were participating, in pro participating in those protests were, were taking pains to sort of avoid surveillance, um, you know, by, by using sort of encrypted apps and wearing masks and, and sort of um, trying to avoid having their, their subway cards um, uh, tracked and that sort of thing. Um, there's definitely surveillance in, in Xinjiang uh, or sorry, in uh, sorry, in Tibet, which is which is just south of Xinjiang, uh, they um, Lisa actually did some some great reporting on this last year. But they they've been deploying um, uh, cameras in in in, uh, in Buddhist temples and, and monasteries, um, including they've also been sort of they've been deploying drones and all and all sorts of technology in Tibet to sort of really lock things down there. Yeah, and I, I guess I would add to that in saying that um, when the surveillance system in Hong Kong seems to be revolving, at least when, when the protests were ongoing, there was a lot of surveillance on social media and less of the digital kind of camera type that we saw uh, in China. Like when, in, in Hong Kong, maybe like a year or two ago, you were realizing that if you were a teacher or a civil servant and you expressed an opinion on social media, um, maybe you express some sympathy or support for protesters on the street or for, you know, uh, expressed a, a desire for less Chinese influence, you could be reported by, you know, people who had seen your social media posts. So there was a lot of surveilling of, like, social media posts, but in terms of actual camera deployment, uh, it wasn't as um, comprehensive as it was in China. But that could change. Yeah, that, yeah. that could change. Sure. You know, so there's been a lot of um, talk about um, the Chinese surveillance state and it being exported to other countries. Um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if you delve into this in your book, but there have been cases of sur Chinese surveillance uh, cameras being placed in parts of Myanmar against um, against protesters. There's been, been um, increasingly we've seen um, in Europe concern or, or politicians raising concern about um, about certain Chinese companies uh, setting up shop or being used that might have been used to pay the Uyghurs, and there's starting to be a movement against that. But do you touch upon this at all in your book, or, or is there anything that we should be looking at about about this model being exported? Yeah, no, we do. We do deal with this in the in the book quite a bit, and it, and I think it's actually part of one of the the, the most important parts of the story, uh, which is that the the Chinese government is actively exporting or Chinese companies with, with the help of the Chinese government are actively exporting these technologies. Um, it's hard to get a sense of exactly the scope, but the, the, the most reliable estimate that we've come across uh, suggests that there, that it's been exported to a little bit more than 80 countries worldwide, including several democracies. Um, and that's, as, that's as of 2020. So it's that number has probably gone up, gone up since. Um, and it really is all kinds of all kinds of countries who, who have been importing it that have been importing it. Um, the one place that we went to where we where we saw this was Uganda, um, where the the strongman leader there, Yuri Museveni, uh, bought a bought a sort of state surveillance starter kit from from Huawei, which is uh, you know the the 
Chinese telecom equipment maker um, and and use that system uh, ultimately to to sort of track. Um, I mean, he's, he bought it initially. He said he was he was buying it to to fight crime. But but very quickly after it was installed, he, he turned it against um opposition political candidates and their supporters, uh, including in, in the most recent elections there. Um, so, you know, the, the interesting thing about Chinese exports of surveillance is, that, I mean, there's this question, right, about what is, is China trying to export its model of, of sort of tech authoritarianism abroad? And, you know, the, the answer is not exactly, it's, 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 it's a little bit complicated. Um, you know, ultimately, China really can't export or there are questions about whether China's model is actually exportable, right? Because China, if you look at the country, has a bunch of really unique advantages. You know, it's a it's a massive country, uh, relatively wealthy uh, by developing country standards. Uh, it has um, huge amounts of data already uh, that, that that has been collecting for for decades, and it has a you know obviously cutting edge technology and a really um, pretty competent, massive bureaucracy, right? And there just aren't that many um, countries around the globe that can say that. Uh, so, so whether, you know, would a country like Uganda be able to exactly replicate China's system? Probably not. But, you know, the Communist Party is, you know, that's not, the Communist Party isn't, isn't really interested in that. They just, they want to spread these technologies and they're, and they're sort of happy to sell them to whomever wants to buy them. And, and, you know, I think ultimately what China wants or what it is doing is, is promoting this idea that these technologies um, are useful in exercising social control in whatever way any government wants to, to exercise it. Thank you. Lisa, um, uh, we're, we're, we've got like a minute left uh, of time. So I, I'd, I'd like to ask you, if you're in Singapore, are you seeing any of this exportation or, or use of these, uh, these technologies in Southeast Asia or around where you're based? Um, just curious to, 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 to get your perspective on this. Sure. Yeah. So I left China uh, at the end of 2018. And I remember in the last like, year before I left China, I was definitely noticing a lot of these cameras popping up on street corners. And, you know, I, I, I had this daily walk between like the sub just to get to the subway to go to work. And between the subway entrance and the gantry where you would tap your car to go in and take the subway, there were 17 cameras. And that this is in Shanghai. Um, I think what what happened when I moved back was it really illustrated how attractive these systems were to governments outside of China. Because after I moved back, I started noticing like cameras were popping up uh, on street corners in Singapore. Pop cameras were pop popping up on road intersections, right, to catch people who were speeding or to catch people who were like flouting like rules, parked in illegally in the wrong place. And recently, a new subway station opened underneath my residence compound. And just walking from the subway station, the entrance to the gantry, there were more than a dozen cameras. Um, and they were like hanging like peaches, you know, the very round ones. And that really, you know, it hit home how like China's model might not be that unattractive after all to countries, you know, in the region. It might seem uh, to the West as very, you know, very nefarious and very sinister, but there were definitely some uh, governments in Asia, particularly in Asia and Africa, that might be more partial to these systems and adopting them. Thank you, Lisa. So I'd like to take this moment. To, I want to thank Josh and Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you taking time of your schedule to talk to uh, 
to us and our, and our, our followers at our institute. And I want to uh, apologize for, there were a few other questions that were posed. We didn't have time, so sorry about that, but uh, we'll post this video online. We'll ask you to share it. And I just wanna ask everyone, please, if you have the time, look up Surveillance State, um, order it online or go to your local bookstore. It's a fascinating book and uh, it has far reaching implications for, for, for human rights. Um, so thank you, uh, Josh and Lisa for, for joining us today. Thank you, Kyle. It was a pleasure.